Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hey, culminators, how you doing? Thanks again for, for dropping in. So I first became familiar with Kyle Serafin when I was privileged to see him appear in Dinesh D'Souza's, how shall I put it? Well, his rather disappointing and painful to watch, uh, not because it wasn't very well done, film called A Police State, which uh, I reviewed online, and I recommend that people see it. Kyle Serafin is everywhere. He's everywhere. He has been there he has done that and he's had it done to him uh and i'm hoping that in the course of our discussion i can find something that he hasn't already said in in the uh numerous other interviews that he's done uh from tucker carlson and dan bongino to people perhaps who are even tinier than i am or maybe this is an all-time low for him i don't know kyle welcome to the show how are you <laughs> i'm very well thank you definitely not an all-time low i'm looking forward to it well thank you i appreciate that i, I will i want to play from your rumble channel one tiny little excerpt because i because i i think it's a it's a really good place for us to start Kyle Seraph and I, I can't thank you enough for speaking out. I knew you guys were out there, and I knew it was just a matter of time. You got a lot of guts putting your face and your name for this. You're doing a service on behalf of the American people, and uh, from the bottom of my uh, cracking, broken heart sometimes. Thank you very much. Let me ask you, um, Kyle. First, to be fair to our listeners and viewers, both of them. <laughs> My mom. I know that feeling. My mom watches mine as well. <laughs> if my mom watched mine, she she would write me out. Is that right? Not that there's much to write out, but um, let's put it this way. <laughs> what my mom watches is The View. Yeah. No so further question. One. I was wondering who the audience was. It's her mother. <laughs> That's good. No, it's all, actually... I often wonder that. I wonder who watches The View Who's going to those ladies as authorities? And well, uh, there obviously are some. Unfortunately, it's it's ladies like my mom. It really it, uh So in any event, give the viewers uh, the short version. Tell us how you went from being an FBI agent to social media pond scum. Pretty straightforward, um, although it's uh, doesn't didn't make any sense at the time. So uh, I'm 42 years old. I'm a father of four now. I was a father of three when I left the FBI. Uh, I'm a military veteran of the Air Force. I joined the Air Force to do hard things and uh, try to drop warheads on foreheads on bad people. That was the the mindset I had at 27 years old. And before that, I had an entirely you know weird adolescent life of. 
being a guy who ran a restaurant in Kansas and I, I sold ergonomic office furniture in San Francisco and I worked for a movie studio. So I did a bunch of these other weird things. I worked in finance and this kind of thing. And then I thought, what am I doing with my life? Why am I not creating or destroying something? I, I went towards the destroying thing. That made more sense to me. And no, so another, you wanted an impact. You you want, this is actually, I think- Literally important. impactful. You yep. want, right. You want to feel like you're doing, like you're leaving a mark on the world. That's right. And it can be, you could build or you could leave a crater. So you opted for the crater. But I mean, you know, I came from a family where we did a lot of manual labor. I grew up with a with a lot of calluses on my hands from digging holes. My dad was famous for digging holes. I put I planted trees. I dug trenches. I did a lot well, of I've, landscaping. I've got a tweet thread to share with you after we get all. I, I wrote on this a couple of years ago. My, my sorry to interrupt you, but I'll forget it. My dad, blessed memory, was was a white collar worker, mm -hmm. high school graduate. He once went got a job as on a cement mixer one day i know that i've done that job in a warehouse one day, one day in a warehouse was all i amassed because they put me on a forklift with no qualifications i did this in high school and my buddy and i just drove around and broke stuff all over the place <laughs> i i did so much damage and god bless them they actually paid me for it too they actually wrote me a check which i was embarrassed to accept but i i drove around on a forklift i ran a forklift full speed not knowing how to handle it uh, into a two-story tall, a two-story tall pile of um, styrofoam, like what do you call it, like food containers, right? Grace. It was a dry goods. Yeah. It was a dry goods warehouse. I, I hit it at full speed and and destroyed it, <laughs> and amongst other things. I also ran the 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 tines into the back of like this uh, pallet full of, of like grape juice or something. It was all these cans of grape juice and I spiked it, you know, at full speed. Cause I didn't know what I was doing. And I pulled back out and I'm like, Oh shit, I got to get out of here. I got to go somewhere else. So I ended up going somewhere else, you know, and trying to just not be in that part of the warehouse where I was destroying things. And this was just a month ago. And you're speaking, you're obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I just did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Not bad. No, but, but, but actually but my Twitter thread was not about my, really about my dad, but it was about how by becoming a country in which young people, Mm -hmm. compared to me you're young people but i mean real young people increasingly have no relationship to the physical world in terms of labor That's in right. terms of building things and make you know everything's virtual and we're an information based economy and uh chances are that's not doing us any favors but okay maybe we'll come back to that most likely i think i think that's very true and you know we may actually come back to that because i think it's it's totally relevant i grew up building things with my hands i grew up putting wood together with screws and glue and nails uh, i i do all my own repairs in my home i redid a bathroom because somebody told me it was going to cost fifteen thousand dollars and i went no it's going to cost me two thousand dollars so i did it myself in my free time when i was an fbi agent no less um, i renovated my entire house i lived in virginia because as you know you move into the uh, the uh, northeast. You got to buy something that uh, the people who built it would be shocked to find out what it costs today, and it's not <laughs> it's not in any better condition than when they bought it or built it. It's actually in way worse condition. It's destroyed. It was something that shouldn't have even stood past the '80s, and uh, there I was, like you know, redoing bathrooms. So something about manual labor made sense to me. Something about creating or destroying made sense to me. I was in a kind of an angry phase, like so many young men. And at 27, I joined the military literally to destroy. I went into a profession to drop warheads on foreheads as, as that's actually the the casual way of saying it, but it's a special operations job to to drop ordnance and it's known as combat control. And I made it 18 months of training, which is a long time to be training to do something. And I just about died. In other words, this is something different from merely being a bomber pilot. This is something on the ground. Yeah. So somebody has to has to make the smart bombs land where they belong. Oh, you're and the those... guy. Oh, you're you're that you're the guy with the with the uh, on the ground giving the coordinates. 
That was the goal. Yeah. So I trained to do that. I became an air traffic controller. I went to survival school with the Air Force. I, I went to airborne school and jumped out of planes with the Army. Um, and I was getting prepared to to graduate. I had gone through demolition and a bunch of other training. And as I was wrapping up, I basically almost died at Fort Bragg, which is where Special Forces are based and uh, where we do our final training there for that particular skill set. And as I nearly died, I was a couple of weeks away from graduation. I'm out in the field and I got a body temp over 106, which was uh, validated by a rectal thermometer, which is not a fun experience, but that was the least of my problems at that point in time. Cause I was almost dying. I, I literally, I, I had lost control of all my bodily functions. I couldn't let go of the rifle I had in my hands. I, you know, I couldn't control my bowels or my, my bladder or anything. I was a mess. I was a complete disaster. They ended up cutting my pack off, cutting up all my, my clothing, uh, tying a, a like a bowling around me and throwing me into a Creek with just my boxers on and a pair of boots. So just to I cool just, you down. I just hung out there, yeah, in the river, just kind of floating around thinking about my life choices, which was a a, a weird moment. And I remember very dramatically that the uh, the medic who was checking on me, I became a paramedic after that as well as part of my other training. And one of the, the I, it was weird, but it's a, it's basically a mental acuity check. And he said, um, he said, sing me your favorite song. And I didn't have a favorite song because I was dying. I didn't have a favorite song at all. I just I I just thought of Bohemian Rhapsody from Queen. So that's what I sang him when I was laying there, like covered in ice and laying on a, you know, on a piece of wood while uh, stripped down almost naked and just trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, you know, the, the question is real. Yeah. Is this the real life? Is this fantasy? I mean, it was all there. So that goes on. I ended up becoming a paramedic. They gave me another opportunity. I went to combat dive school and a bunch of other things. And I got out of the air force with all these skills. They, they never, uh, I was never deployable. I actually was waiting on a last school and during that time, I had kind of a falling out with my command structure because I was 32 years old, going through the same training that a lot of 18 and 19-year-olds go through. And I had a 19-year-old roommate who refused to buy toilet paper and had a $900 a month Jeep payment and all the things that young guys in the military do because I'm enlisted. I'm an enlisted guy with a college degree with a, a well above average IQ surrounded by like, you know, some lovable morons doing moron things. And just what we used to call... Uh, we always say that kind of doing like the meathead routine. And I loved it. I mean, I absolutely love it. I love meathead stuff. I love hard things for the sake of being hard, just because that's what men meant in my head. And, uh, and despite all that, didn't get to deploy, didn't get to go. And so I ended up leaving the air force looking around going like, okay, now what the hell am I going to do? And so I did a couple of things at the same time, because I'm always hedging bets. I threw in a bunch of applications for government agencies that seemed to make sense. I thought maybe I'd be decent in the CIA as a case officer, but I don't speak any languages, so I was probably no good. Uh, I thought maybe the State Department was interesting for me. I considered being a military officer, so I started working down that route. And then I threw in one with the FBI, obviously. And then I also went back to school because I had the GI Bill. So I started taking all these college courses because I thought, well, I'm a paramedic. I've got thousands of clinical hours right now. Maybe I go and I become either a PA or an emergency room physician, and that suits the need to create something, something good, help lives. And for, and for action, and for action. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm an outdoor dog. I need to be moving. I need to be touching things. I need to be kinetic in many Whereas ways. So that I'm, was... I'm an avid endorsement, as I've said several times on Twitter. <laughs> I, I know that there are those, like, look, it takes both kinds. There's no question about it. Like, That's we can't right. have both. Not everybody can be outside because there's other things to do, right? Some things have to be done indoors. That's right. So, 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 you, so there I am. What? You know, you got a call from the FBI. I, the weirdest possible way I get the call from the FBI, I basically gave up on the FBI because I forgot about it because they take forever to get back to you. And my wife and I decided that we were going to leave and enter the second oldest profession in the world, being a, a hotelier. And we were going to open a bed and breakfast in Vermont, which I'd never been to. And that's what we decided to do. So we we packed up all of our stuff in Austin, Texas, and we put everything in storage and we sold everything that didn't fit. And we climbed in our little station wagon and we drove to Vermont. And immediately within an hour of being there, my wife said, we can never live here, which is always... <laughs> 
which is always interesting because we had no place to live. We'd 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 moved out, we'd rented out our apartment that we owned, and uh, you had we're... completely bought into the idea that you would yes. you would buy and manage a, a bed and breakfast in a place you'd never been to, in a region you'd evidently never been to. Never been to, no. Yeah, that was that's the kind but, of guy I am. That should tell you a lot about the kind of guy I am. Well, I'll tell you one thing: you're not is someone who says, "Well, but by, by under." You're you're not someone who is a prisoner of the false, uh, of the sunk cost fallacy. Obviously, in fact, that's the story of your life. I think is what we're beginning to see, um, yeah. because you might it's, have said there that. are lookers and there are leapers. I find, and a lot of people will look forever and they will measure and they will cut and they will always try to find the angle. And some people just go, "Looks good enough, let's do it." And I'm somewhere between there, but I'm definitely more on the leap side. I don't go without thinking. I did have a backup plan. I had a job interview up in Vermont. I was actually at a paramedic job interview, which I canceled because my wife said, we're not gonna live here. She said, this is where ax murderers live. And so we decided not to live where the ax murderers live. Wait, that so was her assessment. Had, had you been living in Virginia at the time? No, we were living, we were living in Texas. We you were in from Texas. Texas. Now, the only, the only good news is, is my wife is from Brooklyn. She grew up in the, in New York city. Uh, she was born in Manhattan, grew up in Brooklyn, spent her time around there. So it wasn't foreign to her. But And she'd done a bunch of Google Earth research, what we would call map reconnaissance in the military. She'd done a bunch of map recon, which turned out to be um, not translatable into her actually liking the town we went to. <laughs> but that was the goal. And so that failed. But luckily, the FBI called me about the same time. And they said, hey, we'd like to start this long hiring process with you. And I went and did an interview in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh, did another interview. Uh, finally, well, so in other words, you were you you stayed in New England because we did. Yeah, out, we we you're out of gas. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, the diesels run out on the on the on the turbo diesel. Uh, we ended up staying in uh, Connecticut for a little while with my in laws and kind of looking around. They've got a big farmhouse on some acreage. I did some handyman work for them. We were kind of figure out. We had money put away. We had income. We had rental income because we rented out our condo. So we were. Oh, you didn't homeless. sell it. You rented it out. Okay, that's right. Yeah, so we were homeless but not destitute. Um, like I find myself many times in my life now. Okay. And, and so we're looking around going, well, okay, what comes next? FBI calls. That looks interesting. You can't count on it, but you can't, you can't ignore it. So I ended up doing my interview in, uh, in uh, New York City. I went down to, to Federal Plaza and did the interview there. And uh, they do what's called phase two. So they have you do a writing sample, which I thought I crushed. And I guess I did okay. And then they do an interview that's very, very weird. It's the weirdest interview you've ever done. It's three people looking at you, asking questions. And even when you crack a really good joke, which I had a few of them, and, uh, and I knew it. They just look up at you and then they look back down because they're not allowed by the rules to give you a human reaction, which is the weirdest way to interview somebody. It's really awful and really bad, uh, but that's what they do. And then uh, basically they said, uh, yeah, you're hired and we've got to get through your background checks. So maybe we'll see you in a year or so. And so then you go, well, what am I going to do? My wife ends up taking a job back in Texas. So we ended up moving down the street from our old house that we were still getting rental income from that we owned. And uh, we uh, we did that for a little while. And then I finally went to Quantico in 2016. This is the longer version, but it's kind of funny, I guess. And it tells you a little bit about me. Uh, I joined in 2016. I went in for the summer. And I immediately, within the first couple hours of being at Quantico, decided that this was probably going to be a very difficult job to retire from because it's not what it's cracked up to be in any way, shape, or form. What you believe Quantico is, if you've never been, and what it actually is, are not the same things. Surprisingly, I've never been. Yeah. It's just not the same. And, you know, you have this expectation that it's going to be something, it's going to be elite, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be paramilitary, um, and instead, it is gentle and soft and government and people who make crying noises when they have to do a bunch of push-ups and, you know, nobody knows how to suffer silently. And at least a third of the people there, I have no idea how they got there. A third of them seemed well overqualified. And then a third of them were kind of in my boat where you're like, Meh, let's just see how you perform when you put your spikes on. Um, it it I don't was not academically but, difficult. 
in other words, this was going to be a hard job to retire from because it's so cushy. It, it just wasn't the people that I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going there to go with meat eaters because that's kind of what I had, had come out of the military and assumed that people were going to be there. And there are some meat eaters, you know, meat eaters in the, in the FBI, outdoor dogs that want to do outdoor things that will do hard things simply because they're hard or because they're, they're asked of them. Like, will you go, you know, one of my early um, surveillance gigs that I did, I was working counterintelligence and somebody asked me, Hey, we need someone to climb up every morning at 4 AM and go lay in this, um, this trash dump. You need to crawl in it and lay at this fence line and take pictures of this guy coming in who's working for the Virginia Department of Transportation. And we believe, uh, we don't know what vehicles he's showing up in, but we need to try to figure out what he's riding in and how he's getting around and do what we call pattern of life so we can arrest him later because he's involved in this big public corruption scandal. And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, obviously. And you know, <laughs> two or three days it was freezing cold and it was raining, you know, and I just low crawled in through a bunch of, you know, dirt and, and trash. And it's like in this, this uh this waste area and I'm sitting on a fence line with a camera and uh that's what I did. But it was so, something to and, do. And doctors. Oh, you yeah, were looking for action. I'm like, I'm laying there in the freezing cold, like I'm living my best life. That's that's the dream. Everybody <laughs> wants everybody who joins the FBI thinks at some point they're gonna tap them on the shoulder and be like, Seraphin, I need you in that pile of dirt for you know five <laughs> hours in the dark, you know, looking for a bad guy. You're like, Yeah, of course, of course I'm gonna be there. So I love that. That was great for me. Uh, everyone else thought it was a terrible post, but that sounded fun to me. And I ended up being able to do that full time. So what I did is I ended up leaving the counterintelligence, which is just spying on theoretically Chinese spies was what we were supposed to do. We did a lot of like spying on Americans that really bothered me. And when I would complain about it or say, I don't understand what we're doing or what the motivation is. And I came to realize afterwards that they do what's called reverse targeting, which is explicitly illegal by federal law. And it's done all the time. This is uh, the FISA 702 coverage that people are kind of talking about. And it's up for renewal and it should not be renewed. It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous tool to give to an intelligence agency that also has law enforcement capabilities. But that's what I did. And, I, and it was very unsatisfying. In fact, I had this funny conversation with my boss and he goes, you're not a good agent. And I go, yeah, I know, but, uh, but that's not the real question. Like, I'm not going to fight you on that. The question is, why am I not very good? And he was like, oh, why? And I go, because I don't understand what we're doing. I, I, like, we're not trying and to get criminal care, charges. And you care to understand. It bothers you. The problem here, because mm -hmm. how many other people understood? Maybe two thirds, maybe a third didn't, maybe a third understood, maybe two thirds probably didn't, but they didn't care. Yeah, most people are there to get the paycheck. Um, we call it the golden eagle and it comes and it craps in your bank account, you know, every two weeks. And as long as What's that's reverse happening- reverse targeting though? I don't, I don't, I don't want to lose that. Reverse targeting is, uh, so the way that 702 works, 702 is a provision of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which allows uh, specific spying on people who are assumed to be involved in espionage or being directed by foreign intelligence. Now they've expanded it out and they've also sort of included uh, terrorist states or foreign terrorist actors. I have a real problem with that. I don't know if it's if that's codified by law or just by practice, but it's really dangerous because anytime you creep out these authorities, but 702 is like a shorter version of that. Um, normal FISA that takes a lot of work. There's a thing called the Woods file, which is supposed to be a check and a balance on the agents. You have to validate and, and document every single source and every single fact. And you bring it in front of the FISC, which is the secret surveillance court, the foreign intelligence surveillance court. And then they, they do in this ex parte hearing, decide whether or not you have the probable cause necessary 
to get the, the warrant, which is incredibly invasive. Like they can put microphones in your house. They can put microphones in your car and video cameras and all kinds of wild stuff. And it's all, you know, the techniques are classified and, and the information that they get from them become classified by route uh, of the, uh, the actual methods they're using. So all this stuff is, it's supposed to be really difficult to do. It turns out it's actually not that hard because they can lie about it, but it's supposed to be very hard. And so when they do that, that's one. But FISA 702 is a very light version of that. And in comparison, a true full FISA will take you weeks to prepare and lots of back and forth between the attorneys and the agents and the analysts that are doing it. And then they send it off and it all becomes, you know, sort of blessed off and kosher. And then, and then they go and do the collection. 702, I've written up a 702 in a morning and it's been approved by the end of the week. So it's very, very short. It's very quick timeline. And what you are targeting is explicitly a foreign actor involved in uh, an intelligence service or uh, intelligence gathering that is both um, a foreign actor and overseas, and they cannot be physically in the United States. So imagine uh, I'm going to do one on a Chinese spy who lives in China. And the minute that Chinese spy picks up a... Um, picks up a, what do you call it? Like a, a plane ticket, right? And flies in and lands in Dulles, then we have to turn off that collection because now they're on US soil. So we're no longer able to collect on people once they even, even if they're someone that would otherwise be targeted, the minute they get domestic, we're done with them. If you're, and, in other words, if you're proceeding under 702 and not a full FISA. Correct. That's, that's, the, that's supposed 702. to be how it goes. Correct. But the problem is, and this is explicitly forbidden by law, is you cannot use that 702 to go in. Cause I'm going to get all the emails of that person. I'm going to get maybe their Skype calls. I'm going to get their text messages. If it goes across, you know, any us wires and it's something I can gather. I'm not supposed to go search through that database of things that are collected under 702 and look for Ron Coleman. I can't go look for a us citizen. If I do that, then I am now targeting you. I'm using their collection to target somebody else. That's reverse targeting. That's and reverse it's explicitly targeting. It's explicitly forbidden by law. And that's the only way that that tool is most useful to a criminal investigator. <laughs> it's the, it's, uh, I always tell people, it's like imagining to people going through TSA, right? So if I tell you, you got to go through TSA, imagine you're a TSA agent uh, and, and you like to touch people, right? Because you like that you get to do the pat downs. And, and I actually so just, I have to jam this into, into my eye socket, okay? So that I can Correct. imagine. All right. All right. So now that you're imagining that your job is to make sure that, that weapons do not make it onto an aircraft. That's your job. And you have this tool in front of you. And the tool is a magnetometer, a metal detector. And everyone must go through the metal detector. Now I add a new complication. Everyone's going to go through the metal detector. Your job is to make sure that no guns get on the airplane, but under no circumstances are you permitted to use the magnetometer to identify guns. Ready, go. Right. You're going to use the magnetometer. You right. have no other choice. And right. so when you're a criminal investigator looking for people involved in espionage or treason or various things that might be selling out the United States, and you have this powerful tool that identifies people who are in contact with actual foreign agents, you're going to use it for that thing. And that's why it's so powerful and dangerous. And I don't know how you use it properly if you're doing the job of an FBI agent, which is not a real job. There is no job FBI agent. The job is 1811 series criminal investigator. So even if you don't do criminal investigations, that's your title. That's what you're trained to do. You're Whatever. meant to go look What's for violations of law. Special agent. What's a special agent? So special agent is actually, it's, it's funny. Um, the idea of being a government agent, like Joe Biden is a government agent. The secretary of state is a government agent. An agent of the government who can make binding rulings on behalf of the federal government. That's a government agent. A special agent actually has a limited scope of authority and is only able to enact federal policies and authority in a special way. Special jurisdiction is a better way to think of it. So a special agent is a limited ability to be an agent of the government. 
And in fact, amusingly, it's not actually a job title, although we use it that way. It is, in fact, it's more like a shorthand for what are your authority sets? Who are you? Are you a constable? Are you a deputy? Are you a deputy sheriff, right? A sheriff's deputy? Are you a police officer? Are you a detective, et cetera? You are a special agent of the government in the criminal investigator role for the FBI. That's what it is. Who knew? Now you know. Okay. So you're with the <laughs> FBI. You're doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. You're asking so, questions. You're not getting great answers. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, I started asking questions too early, well too early in my career. Uh, and then I ended up uh, Boy, basically- I, I really truly found a kindred soul here. <laughs> I found why myself- we, Why are we reviewing these documents that a monkey could review? That's how we make our money, Coleman. Yeah. You ask a lot of questions. That's right. It's it's hard to to waste your time doing something that you think like this is this is not necessary. First of all, my question was why do I need a badge and a gun? Why am I doing this job when someone else should be doing it? You've trained me to go and shoot people and be in dangerous places and do things physical, and now you want me to sit eight hours to ten hours behind a computer and read emails in Chinese that I don't read. You didn't assign me a linguist, and the linguist that showed up doesn't know how to read. She can only do it verbally, and we don't have any you know. We don't have any audio. So this is not very helpful. It makes no sense to me. I'm just asking the questions. Turns out that makes you not the right guy for the job in many ways. So I found a way to get into the surveillance squad that did that full time. Um, it is considered a very, very low rung on the FBI's ladder. Nobody wants to do physical surveillance. I thought it was great. I got to pee in a bottle for three straight years, hang out in a car for eight to 10 hours a day. You did empty the bottle out though during those three years, right? Oh yeah, yeah, over and over again. But I'll oh. tell you another fun thing. I would regularly do these dog and pony shows. People from the military will be familiar with the dog and pony where basically someone of stature would come in and go, tell us about your program. And you go, well, it's a wonderful program. And this is where all your money is going. And it buys this night vision and these cameras and all this. And uh, what I would always do is I would sneak my pee bottle onto the table of my gear it would just be an empty, simply lemonade jar because they have the best lids. It's really critical to find the right lid. If you're going to have a pee bottle, you got to make sure if you hit the gas or the brakes, it's not going to just you know open in the car. And so I would always get that and I would set it up. And uh, sure enough, nobody ever asked me about the pee bottle, but uh, it's a critical piece of gear. There are three critical things for a surveillance agent. You need a radio to talk to your team. Uh, you need a cup of coffee to stay awake. And you need a pee bottle because you have a cup of coffee right. and then you, you can be there for as long as you need. I would bring two liters of coffee, a two liter pee bottle, and uh, I was good to go for as long as necessary. So you're an action guy, you're an impact guy, but you're spending hours sitting outside of homes or, or facilities where nothing, mainly nothing is happening. For hours and hours. Yeah, it's, like, it's like hunting. Right. I was about to say, sounds like they're hunting. It's like deer hunting. It's like any other hunting. Your predator or your, you're the predator, they're the prey in many ways. And what you're doing is you're watching for just a few moments of action. And the most fun was when your subject would come out the door and you're on the eye, which is what the person is that's watching the bad guy um, or the subject that you know, of your surveillance. And you'd say, uh, you know, um, you know, front door's opening. We're about to be on the move. Everybody would, you know, put their books away or whatever it was because everyone's scattered all over the place in what we call a, a surveillance bubble. And they're all over the place, ready to go. And everyone's watching and waiting. And then you call it out. Subject's in the car. I have reverse lights. He's turning left. He's driving out. He's going to be making a left turn at the stop sign. He is going northbound on fill in the blank road, northbound on fill in the blank road, out of my sight. And the next person picks it up. And now the chase is on. And now the team is going to follow. And that, that is, is really, really fun. There is no more fun than following people with a well-oiled, well-trained surveillance team and staying out of sight because there's two things. You want to see what they're doing and you want them not to see what you're doing. So I enjoyed the hell out of that. I did that for thousands of hours a year for three straight years. 
but that has a shelf life. There's only so long you can sit in there. You get, you know, your back starts hurting if you're sitting in a car all day. Um, and the travel schedule for me was pretty intense too. I think I had 20 surveillance deployments around the country for what the FBI called priority terrorist subjects. So I went to all kinds of wild stuff. Uh, my first two weeks on the team, I went to Alaska and I had bald eagles that were doing counter surveillance and watching me. And I'm watching this guy that's supposedly a real bad guy, white supremacist. And he went on a backpacking trip and that looked really fun. And I wished I was on the backpacking trip instead of in the car. We drove <laughs> hours and hours and hours into the interior of Alaska. And he ended up getting on a bush plane uh, that was in the water. You know, like one of these duck planes, that's at a dock. I swear to God, he just flew off and we're like, huh, well, I guess this just became airborne. <laughs> like we can't do that. So he's gone. Surveillance discontinued uh, after, you know, hours of being out there and we went and had waffles and then we drove back <laughs> to Anchorage. <laughs> it's like some of the stuff is really great and you get some really good team time. And I, I always wanted to be on a team. I didn't want to be an individual guy sitting at a desk looking at Chinese. If it was a team of us looking at Chinese, that would have been fun, but that's not the way that the FBI generally worked in my experience. So I did that for a little while. I eventually get a, a post that I requested and I requested a post nobody else wanted. I wanted to go to Shelby, Montana, which is in the middle of nowhere. And it's awesome. And it was, uh, I did 30 days up there working on an Indian reservation, which is the Blackfoot reservation. And I was like, this is for me. There are dead bodies. There are dogs everywhere. There are holes in the road. It's hundred mile an hour winds. And we're finding bodies and bones in the middle of nowhere and driving through all this crazy stuff. And like, this is a riot. Like, this is what it's like wind river, except for real. And, uh, the, the FBI agents were not females. They were all a bunch of dudes who were just kind of hanging around doing funny stuff. I thought, this is great. They had machine guns under their desks. Uh, they had some of the old uh, MP5s, which were in, in 10 millimeter that were ready to put down a bear. And I was like, this is it. Like, nobody's going to bother you out here. And I missed the spot by one. They gave it to a, a female who was under five feet tall, who had never been in weather colder than 20 degrees. And she moved out there and it's like 20 below with hundred mile an hour winds. It's like, it's the roughest place you could go. And uh, they gave it to somebody else. So I ended up getting this other post in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is basically going from the top of the country to the bottom of the country. No one even knows Las Cruces is in America. So that's great. Um, it's just about an hour North of El Paso. And I picked a spot in the middle of the desert that had a mountain behind me and a mountain between me and the city. And, uh, I was living on a couple acres and I had coyotes in the backyard. My wife was always worried. They're going to run off with the kids. It was, that was also great. And we had cartel violence and weird stuff. So that's oh, no, why you're just it. assigned to a station there. Yeah. I'm, well, I got assigned to the Indian reservation that was in uh, Mescalero Apache. Uh, the Mescalero Apache Reservation is right near Rio Dosa, uh, New Mexico, in Lincoln County. So that's what I did. I would drive from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I'd drive about 100 miles across the desert through the White Sands Missile Range and Holloman Air Force Base and Alamogordo, New Mexico, which some people have heard of if they're into aliens and stuff. And then I would end up in the mountains and I would go and I would work on the Indian Reservation, which it, it, it's awesome. It actually looks a lot like Tahoe um, compared to like the rest of New Mexico. It's totally bizarre pine forests and beautiful lakes and stuff like that. And I did, you know, criminal investigation. So mostly it was, uh, I would get out there for either domestic assault, uh, sexual assaults, or people that committed suicide. We do death investigations. Oh, so in other words, on a reservation, you're the police. You're the, you're, you're a major crimes detective. The real police are the, uh, either Bureau of Indian Affairs or the tribal police. And then you're the investigator above that where you're doing oh. only specific types of major crimes, but that's what I would do. If there was a big fire, we had a big arson investigation that I was part of. A um, couple things like that. But that that was really interesting work to me. I mean, it's what you think sure. FBI agents do. Yeah, that is Investigate crimes cool. <laughs> instead of stare at Chinese spies. <laughs> All right, so, so far, so good. You so know. far, so good. So I'm there for a couple months. I'm having a good time. I'm like, this is great. I've got a great garage gym. I got guns. I got friends who own ranches. We can shoot coyotes and bad stuff and shoot pigs. Like everything was like kind of lining up. And then I get this email and uh, well, I get two emails. Number one says, you're going to get the, the COVID vaccine, whether you like it or not. 
mandate. This is uh, Executive Order 14043 from the Biden administration. And I'd already had COVID on duty and I uh, had no interest in getting that shot. And I'm a pro-life Catholic. So I was like, this is uh, a no-go for me. I don't like the way it was developed and I don't know enough about it and I'm not going to get it. And it's against my moral beliefs. So I filed a uh, Title VII protected religious disclosure saying that these are my beliefs and, and do whatever you want, but I'm requesting a religious exemption. That was never addressed, by the way. Um, it just went into a box where they ignored it forever. And then a couple of weeks later, I get an email from one of the supervisors in the office that is from a guy named Carlton Peoples, who still works for the FBI, and he's a senior executive. And it said that the FBI is going to be creating this brand new threat tag, EDU officials, which was going to be used to tag threats of violence against members of school boards, specifically we all know parents at school board meetings because I follow the news pretty religiously. And so I immediately went to my member of Congress, not saying the FBI can't investigate parents at school board meetings, which they can, although they shouldn't, but they can because there is a, a concept of interstate threats. And if you make an interstate threat, you're you know technically in the jurisdiction of the FBI. But my concern was, is that I had just heard Merrick Garland say a few days earlier, probably five days prior to getting this email. We're not doing this. We are not doing this under the counterterrorism resources banner. And that's the real difference. That was actually my my specific whistleblower uh, problem. As as many people may have looked at the statute, it says that there's like a very narrow scope of things that are considered to be whistleblower status. And you have to make basically make a violation of rule, law, policy. You have to be a gross public safety issue. There's a couple others, fraud, waste, and abuse. And in my case, I believed that the attorney general may have perjured himself, which would be a violation of law. And he had done so in front of Congress saying that we would not use counterterrorism resources to go after parents. And specifically, I had that belief because Carlton Peoples was the assistant director of the counterterrorism division, and he sent this thing out. And so when the when the AD of counterterrorism sends out a thing saying we're going to be tagging investigations into parents at school boards, and then the attorney general says that we're not doing that, that seems to me like a real problem. He did it under oath. I brought that to Congress. Now, I don't have to be right about that. I just have to be reasonable. That's what the statute says. And so that was my first whistleblower allegation. And a couple of days later, I find out from an attorney friend of mine, um, that that m the chief attorney in my division had reached out to the uh, to the uh, headquarters unit and said, hey, we got this problem. We get this guy who's both a whistleblower and a COVID vax refuser. What should we do with him? And they reached out and they talked to my friend and, and he said, you should promote him. That was his <laughs> answer because he's, he's a kindred spirit in many ways. Um, kind of an old school lawyer who also carried a gun. So those are the kind of people that I thought I was joining up to work with. And instead, uh, they immediately suspended me I was allowed to keep my pay as long as I had enough leave, which I did. And so from November 23rd, when I got kicked out of the office until March 4th of the next year, this is 2021 going into 2022, I was not allowed to come into the office for fear of not taking the COVID shots and not wearing a mask and, you know, whatever, and being a general ne'er-do-well because they just didn't like the fact that I stood up to the bureau in this case. Uh, at some point, my luck ran out in early January and they stopped paying me for two months. And then magically everything changed in the beginning of March. It was March 4th. It was my wife's 40th birthday. And I got to go back to, the, to work simply because Joe Biden was going to do the State of the Union address and he needed to change the rules on COVID policy for federal buildings so that he could have people without masks at the State of the Union. And so it was very obvious to me as someone who's lived outside of DC and followed the news, follows politics, doesn't want to, but did, that this was very, very arbitrary and capricious as you might think. And so there I am, like, I go back to work for six weeks. I made an allegation against my boss that he had abused his authority because my boss 
pulled down some body cam footage. I've been out in the desert. It, uh, people that are in the Northeast have no familiarity with this, but in the Western states, there's tons of public land. It's owned by the American people, like the taxpayers, and it's just open. You can do all kinds of stuff. You can go hunting, you can go camping, uh, you can go out there and hike around and things like that. And I was out doing some firearms training with my duty rig, with my gear that I would normally use for an arrest with my belt and my badge and all the things that you'd expect in my personal truck. And I'm out there in the middle of the desert and I'm well over half a mile away from a the, the corner of a building, which turns out to be a school, but it's above uh, like a hill and then it goes down and then the school's over there. And I'm shooting in the opposite direction in 20 miles of open desert. On the other side of that 20 miles is a mountain range. And on the other side of that is 80 miles more of desert until you get to the Indian reservation. It's basically all desert for like hundred miles. And I'm out there doing what I do, practicing drawing out of my holster, doing some shooting, working on my rifle, making sure the uh, you know the optics are zoned in and all that stuff. And a local cop comes out and he goes, hey, uh, I don't know if we're in the city or the county. And I said, we're in the county. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, I don't know what the state law is, but uh, people are freaking out. And I said, that's fine. Um, people can freak out. The state law says I have to be 150 yards away from an occupied structure. I've got a range finder. Do you want to use it? That's 800 plus yards away. It turned out to be 865 yards away and in the opposite direction. And he goes, well, you know, we had a very friendly interaction. Nothing happened. He agreed that he had no jurisdiction, that there was no code or law being violated. By the way, the only New Mexico code that has to do with shooting near an occupied structure does not apply to law enforcement officers. I found that's the last piece of the, the statute. And so as somebody who cares about the statute, who cares about what's right and wrong, who cares about what state law looks like, um, I, I looked it up before I went out there. I knew where the grounds were. I knew where the city limits were. I knew where the county limits were, et cetera. And so I had all the information. He had none of it. And he asked me to do something that he had no legal authority to do. And I reported to my boss, hey, I just had an interaction with the uh, with the local police, as I am required by FBI policy. He went and got the body cam footage and started showing it around to all my colleagues. The body cam fo footage from the local police? Of me just talking to him. Yeah. And by the way, he didn't get any legal process. He just called a friend who was like a sergeant on the, on the force and they, they pulled it down for him. Then he went and showed it to the secretary that I worked with. He showed it to the new probationary agent who just got out of Quantico. He showed it to the senior agents who were kind of like my peers, but people who were kind of like peer mentors. He showed it to the other supervisor in the office. And he basically, according to the written statements that I have, he went around to make sure that uh, other people also thought that I was being a quote unquote asshole. That was his actual statement to the investigators, that he thought I was being an asshole and he wanted to prove that he was right. And so he agreed with himself and other people did and other people didn't. And I, and I made an allegation that that was an abuse of his authority. He had no investigation into me. He had no right to go pull that footage. He certainly had no right to share it with my, with my colleagues and his subordinates. That wasn't necessary. He could have sent it to the inspection division, but he didn't. And so I reported him. And for 30 days, they investigated him. They closed that investigation, opened an investigation into me the same day they closed the investigation into him. And three days later, they took my badge and my gun away uh, while I was sitting at a conference table. And that was the end of my FBI time. That was April 18th of 2022. And since then, well, I said, well, you got two options if you get removed from the Bureau. You can take it laying down and you can go through the administrative um, procedures, which are basically useless. I actually consulted with one of the guys in your Virginia office and I asked him, I said, what do you think? He goes, yeah, you probably spend, I don't know, $100,000 in litigation fees and, and attorney's fees and you might win $100,000. Like you probably could come out, break, you know, you'd be vindicated, but it would cost you a lot of money. And you know, we don't, we're not, there's no contingency for us to do this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I said, sure. So I represented myself and all the findings and predictably the government was, you know, sided with the government. They, the government investigated the government and found the government did no wrongdoing and therefore vindicated the government's standing. And, and they're surprisingly, go figure. Nobody, nobody would ever expect this. It's totally, a, it's totally off book. So all that goes down. And um, I decided that I had two options. I could basically be quiet and deal with that, or I could sell my house, get ourselves financially very, very lean. And I had some, um, I had some 
income that came in from a passive stream from my wife and I did some investments and we had invested money when we left uh, Virginia and when we had this house. So we sold our house, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, we made a six figure, you know, a low six figure amount on selling it, which was not nothing. And we put that in and we reinvested that. And we basically ended up so that we were never going to be, we were never going to be starving. My children wouldn't know hunger, but uh, we didn't own a home anymore. And then I went loud in September of 2022. And I went on Dan Bongino's podcast simply because, and I think God actually directed me to a lot of this stuff. Cause I, I couldn't have told you why I did it. Somebody sent me a link to his podcast where he said, I'm talking to you, the whistleblower that exposed this thing. I think you're really brave. My microphone is for you. If you want to ever use it or my Fox show, come to me. And then I did. Hold on a second. Someone had told Dan about your case. Didn't know me. He didn't know who I was. No, he but just he, said, knew that, that you, he knew, knew that, the FBI whistleblower. Yep. He knew that there now, had been an FBI whistleblower. Correct. Who had been discharged for really penny ante crap. Right. Uh, yep. How did that, I mean, isn't that, is that something that never, ever happens? People do not. Well, people get fired all the time for doing things that are the right thing. They just don't ever decide to get as vocal as I did. Now, one of the things I did is there was a, uh, there was a, a document that was, that's the militia violent extremists symbols guide. And I brought that to members of Congress. We, my uh, attorney and I sent it to everybody, but Harmony Dillon also shared it on behalf of Project Veritas. So it made it through the channels of the people in Congress, as it often does, to a media source. And it was exposed in a very brilliant leak that went very big. And people went, oh, God, what are they doing? They're calling people who like the Betsy Ross flag, like I have on my wall over here, and people who like the Gadsden flag, and people who are Mike Glover, who's a retired you know, Green Beret, who has a, like his own independent company in training. That guy is apparently a domestic terrorist. So if those people are bad... We're all screwed. And that made it pretty big. And I did a couple of other exposures that uh, went the same way. All the routes were the same. I sent it to the right members of Congress. They managed to get it in the hands of people like Project Veritas or others. Washington Times has been pretty good about it too. And then the story gets really big. And then basically because of those things, and nobody knew it was the same guy that was doing all this stuff, but it was. And so because that was all happening, I get uh, this, this link that was basically Dan Bongino, who I listen to pretty frequently, but not every single day. And they go, you got to hear this. He's talking to you directly. Not that he knows who I am, but he's talking to me. And so I said, will you put me in touch? And they put me in touch. His producer, Guy, who's a really neat guy, um, reaches out and uh, Guy says, uh, so you want to be, you're going to be on the show. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. I said, I'd like to talk to Dan and make it a decision because I want to, I'm going to put my life in somebody's hands is what I'm doing. Anybody who knows this, that's why he says it's so brave because nobody wants to go up against the, the federal government. It's awful, especially publicly. And so he puts me in touch with Dan. Dan calls me. There's this moment, this moment in my life. I'm sitting out on my back porch just before we sold the house. The house is already for sale. It's ready to go. I think we even had a buyer. I think we were under contract. And I'm sitting out there for the last couple of days on my back porch, looking out at the mountains and this beautiful scene and all the desert that we had. And we had an arroyo and it was really awesome. Uh, and I'd done all kinds of work on it to make it really pretty. You know, I built a big gazebo and stuff like that. And I'm on the phone. And if you remember the movie Fight Club, there's an early part where Edward Norton is talking to Brad Pitt for the first time on the phone. They had met in a bar or something like that. And then Ed Norton calls him up and Brad Pitt. So you only get the audio and it's just like crunching, like he's eating peanuts. And it's like, and he's doing this kind of thing. And he's like, so what's going on? So, yeah. And, and so that's what Brad Pitt, that's what Dan Bongino sounded like the first time that we talked. He was eating. I think he just got out of the gym. He sounded like he might be breathing a little hard. <laughs> he was just like, he's like, what's up, man? Like I'm in the middle of doing stuff. Like you want to talk, let's talk. And we talked for about 30 or 40 minutes. And I told him, you know, I'm going to put my hands, my life in your hands. And, and I just kind of want to know who I'm dealing with. And I know everybody needs clicks and everybody wants likes and all this stuff. 
And he said to me something really profound, which people who listen to Dan Bongino instinctively know, but I'll say it explicitly. He eats he said, live animals. He eats, yeah, he eats rats. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> I mean, I- Like a right, snake. Like, <laughs> I'm sure you will learn all about G. Gordon Lindy in, in your training and, okay. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> but there's something else also that you learned about something it also that you already you know. knew. And and what it is, is that Dan told me that uh, he had invested in Rumble and he anticipated having money that he wouldn't have to worry about for the rest of his life with his family because they made a big investment and it went really well. And he was going to take on my case and my problem of wow. trying to expose the FBI like an activist, not like a journalist or not like somebody who's trying to get a, a quick hit on a, on, a, on a podcast. But he said, I will not let you fail. And- I believed him and, and that has been the case. So, for, you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to him. My wife would, you know, would send him thank you notes. And uh, we have just like a lot of love. My, my daughters who are young, they call him uh band Don Gino because they were, they were like three and four years old when this was going down. And so, they said, so, is that your friend? So what did Dan do for you? He flew me out to Miami, took a car up, sat down in the studio. We'd never met before. And the first interview I did, which I believe was on September 23rd or 24th of 2022, we did it um, taped two straight hours, having never met before. And when he walked into the room, he was wearing the exact same thing that I was wearing. He was wearing brown shoes. I had brown boots. We were wearing blue jeans and black t-shirts. And his producer, Guy, looks over and he goes, did you guys plan this? And we go, no, so it was really weird. So he puts on a jacket, we sit down, we mic up and we just knock out two straight hours of talking, just verbal diarrhea. And that launched what ended up being a, like a lot of media attention. My wife and I thought we were gonna just basically go back into hiding again. And instead, it launched me onto all the news programs you you mentioned earlier on. It launched me into talking about this. And I've also been able to have other people from the FBI come to me and go, you're already burned. You're already in public. I don't want to be public. You can be public. How about you take this information about the FBI targeting radical traditional Catholics and make that big in public? How about you take some of these other things out there and you own it? Because they didn't want to expose themselves and I don't blame them. But I'd already taken all the hit. They'd taken my job. They'd taken my career. They'd taken my pension and my health care and all that stuff. They'd taken so you my become home a, like a clearinghouse for FBI whistleblowers. Correct. Meaning that you are being intensely surveilled, as are all your communications. I'm sure. Unless you take particularly rigorous measures with which you should have some familiarity as to what would be it, necessary. It turns out, yeah, I, I actually spotted a surveillance team that was on me when I was flying to move all my house. By the way, you, you keep getting, the, the, the like bubble keeps coming up. This, this, yes, I, so- that's this for, is your, a, for your podcast. I it's from, no, no, it's from my end. It keeps popping up because well, I, know I can't disable end. it. It's coming up from this weird thing that just got uh, set up on, <laughs> it's it's an update that happened on my Mac. And for the last two days, it's been doing that. Every time I do this, it will pop up and it's very frustrating. <laughs> and if I do other weird things, it'll do other things because this is like an Apple feature. If I do this, I'm going to get some confetti, I think, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, it's very straight. Do you see that? You know, I, I don't like I can, it. I can do this. I can get a rainstorm. Like it just, it's bizarre. I think that's really great for teenage girls. I know it's terrible. I but a G-man, a G-man doesn't it's, need these things. I do. I, I don't want them. And you know what? My buddy, Steve Friend thinks they're really great. He's another FBI whistleblower and he puts them on all the time. And I just go, God, how do I disable this thing? I got to disable it again. In any case, that's what's going on. That's what that thumbs up are because I talk with my hands like a crazy man. <laughs> so that's the story. That's how you became Kyle Serafin. And that people and it's been before great. that totally ungoogleable. You couldn't find me anywhere because I didn't want to be anywhere. I had no. And you have this. You have a fairly. I mean, I know a few people with names like yours spelled different ways, but Kyle Sarah, look at Ron Coleman. There are thousands of Ron Coleman's and several Ron Coleman lawyers. I mean, 
you were ungoogleable beside, despite having that unusual name, and now you are now you're this guy. So is it is it okay? Is it all right? I mean, are you, are you liking this new life? I mean, you, we were we were joking about it at the very beginning. You know, you now you're sitting in. You're not being an outdoor cat. You're being an indoor cat. Uh, and I mean, guess you know, I guess you got to do stuff outside if you want. You know, just don't shoot right. within a mile of a of a schoolhouse. I guess. Um, <laughs> so b- believe it or not, we're. All, I mean, no one's definitely no one's listening at this point but but there was a no no you're good you're good but just my i turn people off but at the beginning the, so the passage that i the little uh quote uh, the uh, soundbite is what we call it in the media mm-hmm. is um that i played from dan i met dan at the social media summit in 2020 mm-hmm. not 20 it was 19 2019 wasn't it i think so and um, I was positive he would follow me back after we hung out. And he didn't. Oh, no. And then I realized, That's... why the hell should he? Um, Does he follow we... you now? He, he, he doesn't. He actually called me out once in a, in a broadcast where he said, uh, someone must have brought some tweet of mine to his attention and described me as he's kind of a lawyer, kind of an activist. I, doesn't matter. Dan, Dan, I got no problem with that. So, <laughs> no, and I, and I, so I know I, my point was what you've described is to, to a large extent a cultural phenomenon. In other words, everyone, everyone has known as long as I've been conscious of the FBI, which is for a very long time, because growing up in the 60s and 70s, you'd watch the FBI TV show. Mm hmm which was incredibly accurate, I'm sure, in every respect. 100%, yeah, everyone thinks so. <laughs> that the FBI is a kind of a cult within itself. I mean, you had the Hoover cult, and then after Hoover died, you had the Hoover cult. Mm-hmm. And it has this incredible loyalty culture, which you kind of want in a paramilitary organization. I mean, you want to know guys have your back and all the things. But it seems to me that as much as anything, like y- y- what you got burned over was not some political controversial issue. Yeah, I mean, there's a, the COVID thing is in there, but ultimately your encounter with 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 the cop over the shooting range was, like I said, penny ante baloney. Um, yes, and, and has been actually very recently been outed that way. They said no, under no circumstances should that have resulted in more than a letter of censure at worst, because that's what it would have been. So, but I mean, it's not all that different, is it, from a, a typical police department, right? Yeah. So, crazy is enough, like, like is? guys get away. Well, as far as like, is there like that thin blue line kind of mentality where you got to protect? Yeah. Here's the thing. I'd like to think the FBI, and, and if you went back to me 15 years ago and you said, what's the FBI about? What's your impression? I'd like to believe the FBI is better than that. I'd like to believe in my heart, the FBI should have been a place where people's loyalty to the Constitution was far greater than the loyalty to the FBI. The FBI is incidental. It just turns out you work at the FBI, but you serve the American people for the Constitution. Call me a naive, patriotic type. That is actually very, very true for me. I am that. So now that you have become this vessel for whistleblowing, has that taken you beyond? I mean, after after all, you didn't leave the FBI in a huff because you said, this is just, what we're doing is terrible. This is just wrong. They fired you. They walked you out the door. Well, they claim that I actually resigned because uh, they left me unpaid as a suspended unpaid FBI agent for a year. So I went for an entire year between April of 20, 
two in April of 23 without a paycheck, considered an FBI employee, and they investigated me the entire time through the internal affairs apparatus, not through a criminal process, which they had access to as an administrative sort of uh, remedy. I actually resigned on my podcast of all places, simply because I wanted them to stop doing the internal investigation because they have different authorities than they would under a real criminal investigation. And that seems pretty nonsensical to me because I've never had a job that didn't pay me for a year, but still thought that I was accountable to them. And they did, they did that. That is very cult-like in many ways. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we would argue constructive termination or constructive discharge. That's what me and my buddies have talked about. What you do about that is sort of irrelevant. The, the end result is the same for me, but, um, but yeah, they, they considered me this sort of, I, I did I did resign, I suppose, because I said I didn't work there anymore. I acknowledged well, you... them breaking up with me. <laughs> it's like a bad ex-girlfriend. I keep telling people, the FBI is like a crazy ex-girlfriend that you come home and she's changed the locks. She's thrown all your stuff on the front lawn. She's lit it all on fire. It's sitting there burning and she's screaming, why don't you love me? And you're going like, I don't know, I'm out of here. I want to go stay at my dad's house for a couple of weeks. And then you come <laughs> back and she was like, are we together or what? And you're like, no, I don't want to be together. You burned all my stuff. I'm out. I don't live here anymore. I don't even have any connection to you. And they got, she goes like, you still owe me. You know, that's crazy. You might be too glib and colorful for the FBI anyway. I mean, you see. Uh, Oh, a hundred percent. I'm way too much fun. (laughs) Clearly. I mean, cause I could, I would, I would, if I watched podcasts, which I can't stand, Mm. I would watch you for sure. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Who knew? So, so, so this works out. This, okay. is, this is the, jo- this is the joke that we used to do. I would go and do interviews and I'd bring in new guys from the Academy. And like, look, I, I, I joined the FBI Academy at 30, 35 years old. I graduated. I was 36. And so I'm older than a lot of the people there. You have to be 25 to be an FBI agent. I got a decade on those people. So I have this sort of pattern in my life coming into things like too old. I was a dad at 36 too. I was too old to have my first child at that age, but so be it. Like it turns out I'm way more tired, way more grumpy, but I'm also a lot wiser. So that's useful. And so I'm going through this FBI Academy surrounded by these people and they don't know how to talk to people because I used to do outdoor sales and I used to work with guys who were grunts and I used to dig holes and I've done regular people things and regular people are the types of people that we investigate. People who own a business, people that are like, you know, have employees, people that are employees. These are the kind of people you talk to. Not everybody is a white collar investigator doing fraud that only knows about books. So when I went out to talk to people, I would talk to them like I'm talking to you, like a regular guy. I make jokes. I'm not that serious. I, I, I tell them, look, this is what's going on. I'm very straightforward when I, I say, you don't have to talk to me. You can tell me to go F off and I will. I won't even hold it against you. I would tell me the same thing, but if you want to talk to me, you can. And overwhelmingly people would say this, you're not what I expected when I met an FBI agent. And I'd say, yeah, that's because they're a bunch of nerds. And so I would say that my partner would always look at his shoes and then we would both laugh. Like all of us would laugh except the partner. And, and I felt kind of bad for it, but it's really important that you break that barrier to establish rapport with regular people if you want them to talk to you. And the other thing is once they've given you that rapport, there's a certain amount of respect and honor that comes in it. You have to be honest about it. So I was honest. That's the easy thing to do. They would come out and say weird, weird things, Ron. They would knock on your door and they would say, hi, uh, I'm Kyle Serafin. I'm from the FBI. Your name came across my desk. I wonder if you talk to me. And I would always do the same thing when I'd role play with these guys because I love doing the role play interview thing. I'd say, uh, my name came across your desk, huh? Do you have a conveyor belt? <laughs> or is it like a, like a Wall Street ticker? How do you choose which names you're going to pick from the names that come across your desk? And they have no idea how to answer that. I say, well, why do you I mean, say we're... They well, don't have so, any meaning. I mean, that that is a purposefully meaningful, un, meaningless phrase that's chosen precisely for the... In, in fact, so you mentioned that because when I was when I was going out with my wife, she was a lawyer for the Anti-Defamation League at the time. And, and she was in this small little group there. And this is before they completely ran off, um, you know, uh, this, you know, yeah, they, they, what was the story? And Cliff, that's what you're helping me out with there. Thank yep. you. And 
she taught me that when you when you have to write back to someone who you've been ignoring for months because one of her main jobs was handling letters from prisoners who may or may not have been jewish but they heard the adl sometimes helps people out so they would write letters about this i recently had the opportunity to turn to your letter that's right Utterly, in other words, yeah, it's nonsense. Opportunity. So, yeah, your name came, came across my desk. Okay, so so it's just a weird thing to say. I don't know why you would train it. So I would just try to catch them off because people are wily when they've committed crimes, and even victims are weirded out by the FBI being there. And so, if you act weird as well and say weird things that have no meaning, then people will respond to you in a disingenuous way. So my goal were... is to disarm people. I just want to be a regular guy. I was a sales guy for a while. So well, I were, know what that's like. were you were you good? I mean. Objectively speaking, would your record show a, a you know a good record of you know were you, were you getting commendations and and normal from the FBI and stuff? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I got an I got an award every year on average. Uh, some of them were for silly things. A lot of them for doing uh, above and beyond because I like to build stuff. That's the other thing I told you. I went to that surveillance team. I looked around. It was a dumping ground for agents that were not able to get along with other people. You want to talk about something stupid? This is perfect government. You say, hey, you're you're a lousy agent by yourself. You're not very good at investigating and you're all by yourself doing nothing in your cubicle. Why don't you go sully up an entire team of people so that one guy can ruin six people's jobs instead of one person ruins their own job? So they would send you over to these teams. So I started recruiting and I got a commendation for it. I got the, the highest cash award that the FBI offers. It's a category D award. It was $3,000, which nobody had ever heard of. They wrote me a check for three grand as a bonus, um, literally because I was doing something that nobody else did. I organized all of our gear. I put on an inventory system because we had no inventory system. That so, they have, so they have management tools in place to reward initiative. Of course. Yeah. They have and another to- thing they call a step increase where they bump your pay grade up. They stop doing those. QSI is what they're called, quality step increase. If you do a good job, we bump your pay up within the same grade, your GS-13, but you could be a step two or a step three. So they used to do those. They don't do them as much. But I got the next closest thing, which was a cash award, which was the equivalent of, you know, bumping me up a little bit of pay. But yeah, so what, I, I mean, so, I got I got awards. It happened. I got awards so, the first day I was in uh, in in Albuquerque. In, so the in the thing Albuquerque that you did that was wrong was basically you bucked the hierarchy. Yeah, and I'm not and I'm not one of those people that like reveres the FBI. I I was, you know, like I said, I I don't mind saying feds are a bunch of nerds. Self deprecation, I think, is is sorely lacking in federal law enforcement. Well, that's why they're so easy to spot when they put on their masks and pretend to be white nationalists i mean there you can just smell the, the nerd i'm sorry that in the khakis they oh didn't change God. pants <laughs> who do they think they're fooling so i, I mean are, were you the last guy with an iq over 100 in working at the place i mean who are they- no they're sad the sad thing is this there's a lot of smart people that are medium smart there's a couple of people that are very smart um a lot of people that are indoctrinated so there's a mixture of, of things this is the thing that most people don't grasp first of all the fbi is not a monolith you can't speak about it you know there's thirty-eight thousand people they all have their own story and i would never choose or or deign to speak about like i knew what they were all about but what i do know is that overwhelmingly fbi agents lean conservative libertarian probably is more accurate most people aren't that political to begin with but if they did they lean on the side of civil liberties let's say it's 60 percent of the agents they're recruiting a lot more that are not but of those 60%, that's 60% of what? Less than 14,000. So agents are already the minority of the total employees of the FBI. They used to be the superior, uh, sort of the highest level. All of the serious management positions were staffed by agents. That's no longer the case. So that's a problem. Yes, that's been you going know, on I, for 20 years. That's something that was explained to me at length by uh, uh, Shipley. By Shipley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he knows. He <laughs> told me that, that that absolutely revolutionized for for the for the not for the best, not for the better. Yeah, it's it's sad. That's that's how the bureau started to die. There's a couple of things they started to do. That's one of them. 
and Mueller was was uh, directly sort of people that that are FBI historians and people that are FBI agent historians. They they all say that Louis Free was the last director, and everybody that I talked to that was an old timer, you know, that were that had twenty five years of service. I say old timer, but I mean like for bureau guys. I'm three, four years, five years in, and I'm on a surveillance squad with guys that had 20 and 25 years of experience, some of them 26, 27, and they're going into extensions because they love the FBI. They love what the FBI was about. Don't get me wrong. There were sins in every decade. You can go back to the you know, the Palmer raids of 1917 and 1919. Like the FBI has committed sins, mostly against the political left, interestingly enough, but they've oh, been doing course. it for a very long time. And, you know, and, and it doesn't matter whether you talk about the McCarthy stuff and going after in the Red Scare and going after civil rights leaders like the FBI has got a lot of blood on its hands. No doubt about it. But hey, I think if, that was if the CIA hadn't existed, the FBI would have had to invent it. That's right. Because they needed a partner in crime, right? They're all no, by it's, themselves. And someone was probably guilty of of worse stuff. Believe it or not, though, I mean, the good thing is that this podcast is called the sub the subtitle of the podcast is interesting people. We just got to meet a really interesting people. We didn't really hardly talk about the stuff, but, you, but you've got an incredible story and I'm glad we got to, to know each other. And I, I think we're going to have to do another another meeting to talk big picture stuff. Now Now that I and the audience know more about you, you're having fun, it seems. It seems like you managed to always have fun. I mean, after all, you're a guy who has fun sitting in a duck blind, <laughs> you know, for- Watching bad guys and, peeing in a bottle. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean- yeah. Yeah, we won't go there. Um, and, and you've got this great relationship with Dan Bongino, who's, you know, who, who I mean, what the heck? You know, that you're staying busy. So I'm going to show folks uh, if they want to learn more about you and your and, and your adventurous life, the Kyle Serafin show. Yeah, you just use kyleserafin.com. So there's you recovering FBI agent. I think you're covering rather well. Thank you. Federal whistleblower. Uh, civil liberties enthusiast. You seem to be that as well. Uh, second, we didn't talk at all. It's about two-way. Guys on Rumble. The guys, he's, of course, he's got a link tree. Everyone's got a link tree. That doesn't prove anything. Facebook, the, the, you know, Insta, you can see him in a, a, a oh, no bathing suit pictures. Okay. <laughs> I assume that if that's what you're on Instagram, that that's what you're doing. I hate Instagram. I feel like it's just a repository for online prostitutes. I don't understand what it's about. I despise everything that's meta, but uh, someone told me I had to save at least the link. So I did. I'm mostly on Twitter. That's where I like to engage. That's, um, someone that, said, that's me too. Twitter, Twitter, yep. Twitter is absolutely uh, yeah, the, the, the way to go. It's accessible, gonna, but it's fun. We're going to have to hang out again. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and getting your interesting story uh, uh, out out uh, through, not through the culmination. It's culmination. See, it, it's it's a pun that nobody gets. I get and, it. I like it. But that's my life, is I'm basically operating on a level that... Well, just not appreciated so much. If you, if you operate above the 70th percentile, you got a lot of people that are never going to get it. That's just how it works. Selective appeal, I think, was the term that we learned. I like it. All right, Kyle, great. We'll hang out some more. A real good talk. Wait, wait. So now you live where? No. Now you're Texas again. Are you back in Texas. Texas? Yes, sir. And you completely ruled out the bed and breakfast? Not No no going back to that? Not, not in Vermont. Maybe in Idaho. What was it that... Like what surprised your wife about the about Vermont? The town was Brattleboro. I'll be very specific. Uh, we went in, in bastards. Bad. I know what they do there. Mm -hmm. And we went there, and I stayed at the Colonial Motel and Spa, the first motel and spa I've ever been to. Been to hotels and spa, but never motels and spa. And we got in the room, and there were bugs in the room. There were bugs under the sheets. That wasn't a good look. And then there were hookers next door that were setting out their lawn chairs, waiting for Johns. 
And my wife asked me if I was armed because she was afraid of axe murderers. And then we went through the town and it seemed, this is the, it was like, um, the it was like the Hawaii of Vermont. And I'll describe it as this. It was a place that was both economically depressed, but also depressing. And it was people that relied on tourist dollars and despised the people who they relied upon. That was a sad moment. And we didn't want to be part of that in a way. I hope it's not the same way, but I suspect it probably is. That's a tough culture to be in where people hate outsiders, but they rely on outsiders for their survival. It's a, that it's, is a it's lot sad. of of New England that isn't coastal. Yeah. Uh, and as well as um, upstate New York, the Catskills region, yeah. there's nothing doing there. There's no, you know, there's no, re there's no infrastructure. There's no reason you would build a factory there, even if they weren't, you know, if it weren't economically... Uh, untenable and then they go and vote democrat they or, do I, indeed don't they it doesn't make any sense to me all right buddy I'm, i think you and i could, could could talk all night you're in texas though so we probably won't have a chance to have dinner in the in the reasonable reasonably uh, certain future but great talking to you thanks Likewise. for culminating with me i appreciate it hey thank you for listening to the coleman nation podcast don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.